turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your lives, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can also email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Lots going on tonight here at Calvary Chapel. Pastor Ken is going to be teaching out of the Gospel of John uh, that's tonight at 7 o'clock. You can also watch that at calvarysa.com on live stream. Uh, and then, of course, on Sunday, I'm going to be doing a, um, a New Year's message at the end of the year, or more appropriate, I think, let's go into the next year message. Uh, and this will be our final Sunday of 2023. Time is really going fast, but that's what we're doing. Uh, on a scheduling note, we will not be live on Monday on the holiday. The studio is closed. The station is closed. And so uh, we will be running a rebroadcast. Uh, Lord willing, I'll be back here live on Tuesday of next week uh, on the program at four o'clock. Okay, let's get to questions while we wait your phone calls as your last opportunity in 2023 to call. Think about that for a moment. Here is our first question. This one is from Anonymous. Uh, I think with tongue-in-cheek, this person says, what's your favorite book from the Bible, and why is it Leviticus? And then he says, just kidding, what is your favorite Old Testament and New Testament book, and why? Um, you know, I, I have a hard time, because whatever I, I'm, I'm studying happens to be my favorite, typically. Uh, the Lord, you know, the Bible is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It cuts and, and splits spirit and, and, and flesh. and So, so I, I love them all. 
Um, I can tell you without any doubt, my favorite book to teach in the Old Testament is the book of Judges. Uh, it is a wonderful book to teach because of the the rich, rich, rich character studies. Uh, so I, I love the book of of uh, Judges, but but more to teach than just to read. It's really kind of a sad book because it's like the low point in Israel's history when man did what seemed right in his own eyes. Uh, but in in terms of the Old Testament, I like the historical books. Uh, currently, my personal reading is in Second Samuel, and I love going through First and Second Samuel. Uh, I just love the history, so I love the historical books. Um, but beyond that, I don't really have a favorite. In the New Testament, um, my favorite book, I think, is the Book of Ephesians, and the reason I say that is because of the divine design of the book. Uh, with new believers, I'll often say, read the book of Ephesians, read the first three chapters uh, ten times, and then read the next three chapters ten times. And the reason we want to do it is because the first three chapters are, this is what God has done for you. And he just lays it out. And then the final three chapters, of course, is what we are to do and how we are to respond with what he's done. So Anonymous, uh, in the New Testament, I think Ephesians is my favorite book. Uh, and yet, to say that I like it more than Romans or I like it more than any of the Gospels is really a hard thing to quantify. I can also tell you this. I tell our church here at Calvary Chapel, um, in their personal reading, they ought to be reading the book of Acts and the book of Revelation at least twice each year. I think those books are so important. Acts, because this is the model for church that God has given us. This is what we ought to be doing, what churches ought to look like, what Christians ought to look like. And the book of Revelation, because we need to be excited about the return of Jesus Christ. So those are the books. But but again, to say I have a favorite is really, really hard. Thank you for the question, Anonymous. And Leviticus has turned out not to be as bad as I thought it was. You know, sort of like going to the dentist to hear me teach Leviticus. Uh, and the dentist say, oh, by the way, we're out of painkiller. And, and uh, I, I thought that's what Leviticus would be like. It's not been that bad. So thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question um, from Davis. He says, in regards to what you and Paula talked about yesterday, I want to know if I need to have a wedding. My girl and I have been together for seven years. We have a child as well. However, we've never been married. We recently both got saved and life has been great since. Good for you. That's my insert there. According to Texas law, if you live together for more than a couple of years and refer to each other as husband and wife, then you are considered married. Uh, we've called each other husband and wife for about two years, even before we got saved. Are we still in sin? Do we need to have a formal wedding? What do we do? Thank you for your help. Davis, I'm so excited when this happens. I'm excited because when people get saved and the Holy Spirit begins convicting them, these are the kind of questions that have been asked. And on, a, on an interesting note, we, in the last six months, we have had so many people in exactly your situation who've come to church, they've started listening to the word, they got saved, and, and the Spirit of God just sort of knocked on the door of their heart and said, you know, now you need to make this right. And that's exactly what's happening to you and to this woman who's in your life, the woman that you love. So yes, you need to get married. You know, what the state calls a common law marriage or, or what people accept absolutely matters not at all. It's what God says. 
And and the marriage covenant between a husband and a wife is so important. It's the it's the most um, um, accurate picture of what our relationship with Jesus is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be intimate. It's supposed to be passionate. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be serious. We're to take our commitment serious. So, Davis, yes, you need to have a wedding. Do it quickly. You, you, you're committed to this woman. God bless you for that. But now that you're saved, everything changes. And certainly you want the Lord to be able to bless your marriage. So, yeah, you need the license. We need to be married legally in the eyes of the state. Um, but what's more important is you're doing it as an act of obedience, which really is an act of worship. You're doing that, and you're, you're just saying to your wife and to your child, um, you're, you're simply saying, okay, Lord, now all of who we are and where we're going is given to you. We're, we're no longer going to do things our way. We're going to do things your way from this point forward. And believe me, Davis, the Lord will bless it abundantly. God bless you. And I'm so grateful that you are listening to the Holy Spirit knock on the door of your heart. But yeah, you need to. Uh, it can be done quickly. It doesn't have to be expensive. Just you're doing it for the Lord. You can go get a Texas marriage license. Um, uh, the city of San Antonio, I don't know where you live, but the city of San Antonio will waive the 72-hour waiting period. And then just go find a pastor or judge or somebody to marry you. Uh, if you are now, as a new believer, going to church, ask one of your pastors or staff pastors there to do it. Everybody will be thrilled for you. And we've done it, I don't know, since in the last six months, I'll bet, ten times. And, and, and two or three of those times, just in the last couple of weeks, last night somebody got saved here. At Calvary Chapel, not last night, Wednesday night, somebody got saved here at Calvary Chapel, and it was a, a man and woman who were living together, not married, uh, and already they're talking with Pastor Ken about getting married. It's the right thing to do. God bless you. I always love hearing that. Here is our next question. This one is from uh, Anonymous. Why did God choose Aaron to be the priest when he was the key instrument to making the idol while Moses was away. You know, Anonymous, the reason is because God doesn't keep a record of wrongs. When we become his, um, his gifts and calling are irrevocable. Uh, God chose Aaron before the golden calf, and Aaron was repentant. Aaron, um, uh, I mean, he, he tried to evade responsibility at first, but um, Aaron did the right thing, and he was repentant, and, and God allowed him to do it. Now, that's important, because the same thing is true for you and for me. What that means, Anonymous, is that when we mess up, God doesn't throw a fit. God doesn't put us on restriction or on probation. It means that when we um, apply First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, that is to agree with God about sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It means that our relationship is completely restored reconciled to God, and we have the full access to all of the gifts and work that God has ever done. So it's really important you understand, because too often we think God is a, is a God who judges our performance. God calls us, and when he called Aaron, he knew Aaron was going to be responsible for the golden calf. 
So that's very important. We, we're not serving God on a performance basis. He chose you. He chose me. And when we mess up, he's provided a, an instrument, a vehicle through which we can be reconciled back to him and start all over fresh. He did it for Aaron. And by the way, Moses wasn't perfect. David wasn't perfect. Abraham, going all the way back, wasn't perfect. But God used them because they were chosen by God for that very thing. So, hope that makes sense to you, Anonymous. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Amir. Amir says, for every religion, there is a Chuck Smith, a Billy Graham, or even a Ron Arbaugh. I, I laughed when I read your your email, uh, Amir, because my name doesn't go into that sentence. Um, people claim to see God move on their behalf or providing for their needs. How can you be sure that what you believe is so sure when other people feel the exact same way in a different religion? Amir, this is really the most important question that, that we get, uh, and we get it quite often on this radio program because this is about what is true. You know, what a Muslim believes or what a Buddhist believes, uh, if either of those things are true, then the other one is not. If what I believe is true uh, as a Christian, if it is really true, then uh, Islam and Buddhism and all the other religious um, systems are all false by definition. And what's important here is that our eternal destination depends on finding out what's true. And Amir, I don't know if this is the Holy Spirit is beginning to stir your heart. I hope that's the case. But here's how we know. And no other religion has anything close to this kind of demonstrable proof or evidence. Jesus died. He didn't stay dead. They couldn't find the body. The tomb was empty. And then we know historically Jesus was alive. He was with his disciples for 40 days. We have not only the Bible, but secular history that confirms that. And all we have to do is go back to the empty tomb. If it is true that Jesus predicted his death and then predicted his resurrection, and that happened, then we know that the the founder of what we would call our faith, um, he was telling the truth. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. That's a very bold statement. It's a very bold, bold, bold statement. And the reality is, if it uh, wasn't true, then Jesus would have been uh, a false teacher and we would all be lost. So it's really important that you find out for yourself. Um, Muhammad, the Islam prophet, he died, he stayed dead founder of every other religion, died and remained dead. But not Jesus. And the empty tomb is the validation that our faith is true. And then we have to go to the next step and say, well, if our faith is true, then every faith that contradicts it is false. And the people that are trapped in that religion or those religions well, those people are doomed to an eternity separated from God. Now, it's not sincerity that's the measure. It's not whether Christians are better than other people. That's certainly not the case. What it is, is there's only one answer for sin. Muhammad didn't do anything about sin. A real Muslim can't tell you for sure 
whether or not he or she is going to go to heaven. They hope and they try to do good things. A Christian, on the other hand, God wants us to know that we're saved, to know what will happen when we die. And we have overwhelming evidence. It's not just blind faith. Well, this is how I was raised, so this is what I believe. It's not that at all. There is demonstrable proof that only born-again Christians are going to be in heaven. And Amir, I can say that until I'm blue in the face, until you're tired of hearing it, but here's what you've got to do. You've got to find out for yourself. Every transaction between God and humans is very personal. You've got to find out yourself. And, and I'm not assuming that you're a Muslim because of your name or that's how you were raised, but, but whether you are a Muslim, a Buddhist, um, a, a practitioner of Confucianism, uh, or, or whether you were raised in the Bible Belt, we are all of us accountable to find out if the God that we believe in is really God. If not, we're to be pitied more than all people. That's the way Paul puts it. So that's the answer. We have an empty tomb that demonstrates for sure that what we believe is true. You know, Amir, I had two big issues when I got saved. The first was, of course, I didn't know anything about Jesus. I didn't understand why he would want me saved, why he would want me in heaven. The second issue was the Bible. Was it really the Word of God? And that was the one, really, that turned everything around for me because I had to find out. If, 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 if I say I believe in Jesus, I need to find out if what he told me is true. And uh, I made it the focus of my life to find out very early in my Christian walk if the Bible really is the Word of God. And since that day, I've never had one moment's doubt about my salvation, about where I'm going to spend eternity. I've never had a moment's doubt. And this is now more than 32 years. I've never had a doubt about the goodness of God, the fairness of God, or the veracity of the Bible, the Word of God. And so, Amir, this is a challenge to you, and clearly the Holy Spirit's knocking at the door of your heart, and he's asking you to, to test him, to find out. So dig in. Let me suggest to you the Gospel of John. That's a good place to start for you. And see if the Holy Spirit doesn't communicate to your heart. Now, the enemy is going to be there saying, well, how do you know everybody's sincere? There are other people who are equally good, and they have different beliefs. The problem is sin, and only a perfect man dying for imperfect people can save. Jesus was that man, and we know it because the tomb was empty. Amir, thank you for listening to the program, and thank you for sending in the question. I'm going to be praying for you. Find out what's true. Here is a question. This one is from Anonymous again. Do you take Genesis literal? Uh, if so, Why? Don't you find it weird that all of human creation came from two people? That means we all came from incest. Uh, even after the flood with Noah, that means we all came from incest. That just sounds wrong. Um, I do take Genesis literally. In fact, it has to be taken literally. Um, this is not your question, Anonymous, but uh, if the first 11 chapters of Genesis are not literally uh, true, then every major doctrine of the Christian faith falls apart. 
if Adam and Eve weren't the first two human beings on this planet, and if they weren't created perfect, um, uh, God said they were very, very good. If that wasn't true, then um, original sin um, is is a doctrine that's just um, destroyed. If they weren't the first two people on earth, that means Jesus lied to us in the gospel accounts. If Jesus lied to us, then in fact uh, we have... Uh, no hope because he's disqualified from being a savior. Liar is a sinner. So yeah, we I take generous Genesis very literally, and so too should you. And by the way, it makes perfect sense literally. So that's the way we need to take Genesis. Now your your comment about coming from incest. Uh, God said, um, multiply on the earth. Uh, we told Adam and Eve, and and of course everything was perfect. The, the fall hadn't happened yet. Um, so so there's no incest. There was no law against incest until the law came. So there was no other alternative. Yes, uh, that means brothers and sisters uh, got married and had children. Uh, it means that cousins would marry, and then it would ex- uh, uh, the, the, the population would explode. Uh, and, and so that's what happened. Uh, but there was no... Sin taking a toll. You remember in Genesis, the the early people took, um, um, lived some of them more than nine hundred years. We had three three different people live more than nine hundred years. So very important that that we said that the, the the effects of sin hadn't happened yet. After Noah, remember Noah's sons were married. Then they would send out sons and daughters, and 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 they would multiply. Uh, that was God's means of populating first, and then repopulating the earth. And again, there's no law against incest at that point. They did what they could do, and of course, God blessed it because it was His uh, purpose to 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 populate the earth. So that's not incest. Now we know incest is wrong. We know that there are genetic anomalies that occur. We know that there's damage done, um, but but and God made laws for that very reason against it. But prior to the law, it was not a sin. So um, it sounds wrong, and it should sound wrong to you and to me, because we live in a time when the knowledge of how wrong it is uh, is clear to everyone. Uh, but the reality. Uh, anonymous is that uh, before the law was given, there was no such thing as incest and there was no other option. And because the gene pool was so clean, so pure, there was no problem with it at all. Thank you for the question. Let me see. We have just less than four minutes for this half of the program. This is from Jessica. She says, if Solomon was so wise, why did he fail so much in his life? Also, why was it okay in the Old Testament for men to have multiple wives? Why was God okay with that? Um, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. We know that. We've got it in in the Word of God. Um, But wisdom isn't enough. Um, When Solomon wrote Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. So without the fear of God, uh, we're not really wise. Solomon was a man, and he had flesh, and that's why he failed. And and when he walked in the in the in the power of his flesh, he failed repeatedly. 
Um, it just demonstrates that the very best, even the smartest man who's ever lived on the face of the earth, even that kind of intellect wasn't enough to keep him from sin. I think we, we can learn from that, Jessica. We need to understand that, that, that in our flesh is nothing good. And when we're, you and I, we're not walking in the Spirit, we're, we're going to mess up. So he messed up because our flesh is weak. His flesh was weak. Now, gratefully, we have the book of Ecclesiastes, which is his personal testimony that all the things he tried, all the sin in his life, none of it mattered. None of it came to anything, a meaningless uh, a vanity, a chasing after the wind. Um, but, but to be sure, Solomon was the smartest man who's ever lived, the richest and, by the way, the most powerful as well. Now, as to why it was okay in the Old Testament of multiple wives, it wasn't okay. Now, it was normal in the world, uh, in the ancient world especially, for men to have multiple wives. They needed lots of children. Families hung together. They worked together. And big families were the norm. So men would have several wives, and that's what they did it. God told his people, Israel, not to do that. He wasn't okay with it. They did it anyway. And you say, well, why was God okay with it? He wasn't okay with it, but the people did it because they wanted to do it. And God left them alone with the consequences of those sinful choices. And every time you read about uh, a, a man marrying more than one wife in the Old Testament, trouble is right behind. God tried to warn them. And the reality is they didn't listen. And the reason they didn't listen, Jessica, is the same reason that there are things in your life and mine we don't listen to. Because we want to do what we want to do. We want to do what everybody else does. And God says, no, do what I want to do. So no, he was never okay with multiple wives. People did it anyway. Our Bible simply tells the truth about those people. I said earlier, I'm, my personal reading now is in Second Samuel. And believe me, David made a lot of really bad choices, and he happened to be a man after God's heart. Thank you, Jessica, for the question. Hey, we got 30 minutes left in this year. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. I keep saying this just because it sounds good. The last program of 2023, and we've got Cindy waiting on line one. Cindy, thank you for calling. You are on the air. And I wanted to celebrate that it's the last Friday and it's the last uh, one show for the year. <laughs> well, we're celebrating together. All right. So in Numbers 20, verse 8, it says, Take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they can, they and their livestock can drink. Now, the point that I was getting is that to speak to the rock and it'll pour out water. And I was just thinking about how Jesus is our rock. 
and how he gives us, he is the living water. And I just thought that was kind of a neat little thing in the, in the Old Testament. So I'm going to get off the phone and wish you Happy New Year early and listen to your comment about this. Thank Bye. you, Cindy. Happy New Year to you as well. You know, uh, when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he says that that rock was Christ. That rock was Jesus. Now, I've had a lot of fun with this in the past. You know, the Israelites in the wilderness, and they everywhere they go, somebody says, hey, is that rock following us? Does that rock look like, like the same rock we saw back there? But but literally, there was a rock. I don't, it wasn't the same rock, really. But, but, but it was just Jesus providing for the Israelites in the Exodus wilderness. Now, obviously, they were terrified of coming out of Egypt. Um, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? You brought us out here to die. I mean, that even after the Red Sea, that was um, their 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 common complaint. And God wasn't angry with them. Now Moses got angry with them, but God wasn't angry with them at all. And he, of course, they need water, so he provided water. Think for a moment, Cindy, about how that water would have tasted. You know, when you're out in the wilderness, and I'm a wilderness expert, I guess you guys all know that because I watch survival shows on TV. But, but you know, you have to boil water. You can't drink water out of a stream, those kind of things. Um, this water out of this rock would have been the purest water ever, the best water that has ever been on earth. And yet that rock followed them around, meaning they were never without what they needed to live. And that's exactly what this passage is is all about. Um, uh, Moses, of course, stumbled. Um, he got angry. Instead of speaking to the rock, he struck the rock. And that's why he was disqualified from going into the promised land. Uh, he misrepresented God. And all we have to do is remember, this is exactly how seriously God takes how his people represent or misrepresent him. So, Cindy, that's my comment. Good question. Thank you, and Happy New Year to you as well. Here is a question. This one is from Michael. He says, James seems to make a contradiction to what Paul tells us in all of his letters. Paul says we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. Yet James says that faith without works is dead. Can you please help me understand this? Michael, it's it's pretty simple to understand. Um, we read it and we think, well, 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 James is contradicting Paul, but that's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is that when somebody has faith, there is evidence of that faith. Uh, it's not just, uh, I'm a Christian. Now, I'm a pastor, Michael, and I have people all the time tell me they're Christian, and they're living in sin. They're, 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 they're doing things that they know God doesn't want them to do. But, but they lay claim to, to heaven, and, and when I can talk to them, I, I say, well, what makes you think you're a Christian? Well, I answered an altar call, or I got baptized, or I was raised in church. But the reality is real Christians produce fruit. And that's all James is saying. He says, you show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by what I do. And he's only saying he's not saved by faith. I'm, I'm sorry, he's not saved by works. But what he's saying is that because he's saved, his heart is so grateful that he's walking in obedience and producing a life of fruit. A life that is noted by good works. Again, the works don't save, but the works are a result of being saved. And this ought to be true of every Christian. Now, if you read Galatians chapter 5, 
beginning in verse 22. It says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So the, the man or the woman that is saved, truly saved, those things, the, the, those fruits ought to characterize their walk with the Lord. So if somebody says, I'm a Christian, and they're surly and they're angry and they're, they're holding on unforgiveness toward other people, then James would say, or James is saying, well, what makes that person think he or she is a believer? We're not a believer because we say something. We're a believer because there's a transformation that occurs in our lives. And Michael, the most important thing for us to understand is that the minute you meet Jesus Christ, you really meet him. He's now the Lord of your life. Then everything changes in your life because what really changes is you. And then the works that flow from that, those are the kind of works or the pieces of evidence that James is talking about. So I hope that makes sense to you, Michael. It's not a contradiction at all. And you are absolutely right. Paul says everywhere we're saved by grace, through faith, and even the faith, not of our own. It is the gift of God. Good question. Thank you, Michael. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. You're told free 877-630-KSLR. Greg has a statement, not a question. Greg says, I think the church is too focused on Jesus' return instead of dealing with the real problems in the real world right now. Well, Greg, you think that because you don't really recognize what the real problem is. The real problem isn't poverty. The real problem isn't inequality. The real problem isn't racism or hatred or even the wars. The real problem is sin. And Jesus is going to take away the sin of the world. He's going to judge the sin of the world. And that's why real Christians need to be focused on Jesus' return. Now, I understand, I don't know how old you are, Greg, you don't say that, but there are young people who say, well, I don't want to hear about Jesus' return. I want to serve him while I'm here, and that's great. But your motivation for serving ought to be because you, you want to see him. And he's going to be here. He's coming soon. And we need to stay focused because he's the only one, Greg, that can solve the poverty problem. He's the only one that's going to solve the problem with wars. He's the only one that is going to stamp out rebellion against God. He's going to be the one who returns justice and righteousness to the world. It cannot happen if the Church of Jesus Christ, if Christians individually are focused on fixing problems, Because the only solution to real problems is the person and the presence of Jesus Christ. Greg, I get excited when I think that I could see Jesus at any moment. I get excited about that. It's the goal. Peter says, being in his presence, our salvation is the goal of our, uh, or his presence is the goal of our salvation. And at any moment, the one I love, the one who stole my heart, at any moment I could see him. And what that knowledge does is motivates me to serve him. It motivates me to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It motivates me to be obedient to the Lord, which provides solutions to real problems in the world. You know, Greg, I don't know what you know about Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, but we got a free private Christian school. People that can't afford private educations can come here. We've got a free doctor's office, medical facility, 
uh, multi-medical for people who can't afford to go to the doctor. We never have accepted a penny for what we do. We're in the process of opening in our new location a free restaurant because we want to be able to provide people a meal. We want them to be healthy. Um, we're going to have a free Bible college. Uh, we've got a house for uh, women who are, who are going through hard times, either either by abuse or they've been in trouble. And, we gotta, and, and all of that is free. And God, you see, he's the one who's asked us to do those things for him. And so while we're sold out because Jesus is coming back soon, in the meantime, as long as the Lord tarries, we're doing the things that really deal with real problems in this world. You know, we can protest and we can march in the streets and we can um, shout clever slogans. None of that solves any problems at all. We can think about human trafficking. We've got to do something. The church ought to be doing something about human trafficking. Well, the only thing we can do is get people saved. You see, that's what we've been asked by the Lord to do. And Jesus is the one who remembers and reminds us always that he's coming back. Behold, I'm coming soon, he says in Revelation 22. Behold, I'm coming soon. So, Greg, we need to be more focused on the return of Jesus Christ because what that will do is produce more for the real problems in the world right now. Look to Jesus. Don't look to social justice issues. Look to Jesus. He's got all of those other things covered. All we have to do is our part. Whether it's a church like Calvary Chapel or an individual Christian, Greg, like you or like me. So we need to be focused on his return and that should motivate everything that we do. If I really believe that Jesus is coming back or could come back tomorrow, now I'm not naming any dates, so don't misunderstand But if I really believe Jesus could come back tomorrow, well, I'm going to make today count. And that's why we should be focused on the soon return of Jesus. Greg, thank you. I hope that makes sense to you and sort of rearranges your priorities. Devin says, Pastor Ron, in the Ten Commandments, God said, do not kill, yet he orders Joshua to kill the Canaanites. This is why many people don't believe in God. Well, Devin, if they don't believe in God because of that, they don't understand the commandment. That's first. And second, they don't really know who God is at all. Now, you're right. He ordered Joshua to kill the Canaanites. This was the judgment of God. You know, in the very end, in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to destroy his enemies with a word. With a word. He's going to destroy them all. That's the judgment of God. Well, this is an Old Testament judgment of God. God waited for more than 400 years for all of the various ites in our Bible to repent God demonstrated that he was God. Their false gods weren't God. They did unspeakable things. And God was patient. And and finally, when people weren't going to get saved, that's a a New Testament construct, when they weren't going to obey God in the Old Testament understanding, then he judged them because their, their hearts had become so hard. And so he ordered Joshua to kill them, but he was the instrument of judgment of God. Now, other thing that's important here. 
In the Ten Commands, God didn't say do not kill. He said do not murder. That's the Hebrew word. It's not do not kill. It's do not murder. And Joshua didn't murder anybody. He executed the judgment of God on people who were way overdue for that judgment. You know, when I said to the previous question, Greg, he said uh, about being focused on Jesus' return, uh, the rapture of the church is going to happen. You know, when the rapture of the church occurs, the world is going to be plunged into the Great Tribulation. And billions of people are going to die. Why? Because that's the judgment of God. And the world deserves judgment. You and I, Devin, if you're a believer, we receive grace, unmerited favor. But a time's coming when the world is not going to be able to partake of grace any longer. And that's judgment. So I pray you're a believer, Devin, but um, the reality is is that um, that's no reason not to believe in God. In fact, justice is one more reason to believe in God. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We've still got a little bit of time to do that. Uh, Ed says, what would have happened if Adam and Eve ate from the tree of life after the fall? Well, Ed, what would have happened is they would have been able to eat from the tree and they would have lived forever in sin, separated from God. And God didn't want that to happen. That's why the tree was guarded by a cherubim, the flaming sword. Nobody's getting close to this. God didn't want us to die in our sin. He sent Jesus to die for our sin that we might live. And uh, if Adam and Eve would have had access to the tree of life, um, then uh, they would have just deteriorated and deteriorated and deteriorated, uh, and yet they, they wouldn't have died. Uh, that's why God guarded that tree with the cherubim and the flaming sword. You know, this probably didn't happen the way I'm going to explain it, but I like to think that uh, Adam and Eve, and we're not given time frames. We don't know how long Adam and Eve lived in the garden with the Lord before the fall. But once they were expelled from the garden, um, I believe with all of my heart that Adam would have brought his children to the edge of the garden, gotten as close to it as he could, and he would have rehearsed the story year after year after year. This is where your mother and I lived. This is where we met God. This is where we walked in the cool of the garden with God, and then we blew it. And he would have told them about their sin. He would have told them about the goodness of God, about God's patience and restoring them um, even after they were disobedient. And um, it is likely that until the flood anyway, the garden was accessible. Uh, and they would have said, you know, if you go in there maybe a couple of hundred more yards, you'd see the tree of life, and there's a cherubim with a flaming sword to keep you because God doesn't want us to live in our sin. He wants us to live in him. So, Ed, that's what would have happened. They'd live forever. Can you imagine being like a billion years old and... and uh, wasting away because of sin. Here's a question, Anonymous. Is it okay to be angry with God? He knows the truth, but I still feel guilty. Um, You know, Anonymous, if you're angry with God, he certainly wants you to confess that. But it isn't okay to be angry with God. I think that's why you're feeling guilty, and I think a better word is conviction. We have no right to be angry with God. I mean, think about how selfish that is. If you're angry with God, it's probably because he didn't answer a prayer. It's because maybe you got sick. 
you, 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 things didn't go the way you want to, and so you're angry with God. Why didn't you bless me kind of thing? That is the most selfish approach to God ever. And, and you know, if, if because it's not okay to be angry with God, you've got to go to him and repent. You've got to go and repent. I, you know, it amazes me that humans blame God for bad stuff that happened. We're responsible most of the time for the bad stuff that happens. But, you know, when we get sick, a doctor says, you've got cancer, or or um, we lose somebody that's very close to us. Why didn't you save them, Lord? Because that's not what he does, typically. You know, on those times when he does save people, it's um, it's just something that he does out of his goodness. Because it's in his will to do so. What we've got to do is say... Lord, I trust you. I don't know why this is happening, but I don't need to know why. And we can hold on to Jesus. So it's never okay to be angry with God. Every time you're angry with God, you're in the wrong. And that's when we need to get right with God. And you do that by repenting. Opening your Bible and saying, okay, Lord, speak to my heart. Be with me during this trial or in the pain that I'm in. I don't know why it is that we humans, you know, we'll read about other people dying and we don't think anything of it. But when something comes close to us, we immediately get offended at God and say, well, why didn't you stop it? That's not what he does. We live and we die. So just repent. That's conviction you're feeling. And let the Lord have his way. Let's go to Reuben. Reuben, good to hear from you on this last day of 2023. Yes, sir. I wanted to catch you before the year was up and just tell you thank you for everything you've done for the past, I don't know, I guess 12 years now. <laughs> but uh, I wanted I wanted to share something with you. I know the other day I called and I was I was I was kind of down and, and I was down this morning and uh, I saw a movie, uh, the movie about Jeremy, Jeremy Camp's life. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. ever seen it. It's called I Still Believe. I did see it. Okay, well, God spoke to me through that, and I had to stop it And at the part there where God spoke to me. And it's the part where he and his and Melissa are at that, um, oh, God, the astronomy place. I can't remember how to say what it is. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at the stars, and she said, in our solar system, there are 300 billion stars. And in Andromeda galaxy... There are one trillion stars. And she said, think about that, like 300 billion and a trillion stars. I can't even do the math (laughs) of how many stars that is. She said, that's God's canvas. He paints with the stars. Out of all those stars, the trillions and trillions and billions of stars. But he knows my name. Mm -hmm. And when she said that, I got like slapped in the face and, 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 and it's like, you know, like, cause I told you, I don't even think God talks to me anymore. And it's just, I was feeling sorry for myself and I allowed mm-hmm. myself to to get down and, and, and just have a pity party. But I refuse to let myself go into 2024 like that. I don't want to do that. Good I am going to, Try harder to find a church to go to, get plugged into it, and if 
you know, I have to, you know, I'll just do what I have to do, but I refuse to, to do that. But I wanted to share that thing about the stars. If no one, if people that are listening haven't seen that movie, can I recommend it that they see sure. it and pay attention to that one, that one part where they're in the, I don't know what is it called? Uh, that astronomy place. I forgot what it's called. It just, I, I lost it. But that's a very point to me. That was a very poignant part of the movie because God spoke to me through that. That out of all the stars in the sky, the trillions and trillions and trillions of stars, he knows me. He knows Reuben, the real Reuben. And I just want to thank God. Thank you, I, man. I don't get it right. I don't thank get it you, right man. all the time, but thank you. Thank you. I'm proud of you, man. That's God's pleased. That's what he wants to do. He not only knows your name, um, he knows the names of all of those stars, um, but he'll talk to you even through a movie. Now, I know Jeremy Camp. His joy is real. Um, he's been around Calvary Chapels for uh, all the years I've been around Calvary Chapel. And, um, you know, it was tough. The things that we go through are really, really difficult. But praise the Lord, uh, he looked up. And that's why I always tell people, look up, not out. Look up, because he'll never leave you or forsake you. God bless you, Reuben. It's been really nice kind of hanging out with you for 12 years on the show here. Well, we're inside three minutes. i got time, I think, for maybe one more question. Vince says, Pastor Ron, what is your opinion of pastors using bad language, both in public and in their preaching? Vince, nothing offends me more than that. We're supposed to be God's ambassadors. We're supposed to be representing Jesus. We're, we're, we're supposed to be able to say to people, follow me as I follow Christ. And if our language is filthy, um, then, then the people see no light. There's, there's no, no light at all. And, um, you know, I, I realize people do it to try to be cool. Um, I can tell you there's none of the Holy Spirit in it, nor is there any of the Holy Spirit in their preaching. Um, they are offending God. And seemingly they don't care. And, you know, the whole, well, we're just making it real. Um, well, unfortunately, what they're making real is their sin. And and we're supposed to be an example of what Christ has done and can do. You know, there is, um, um, I don't know, young pastors especially. They think that kind of sets them apart, the shock value. And the reality is, just because that's the way unsaved people talk, it, it it's all the more reason that we who are saved ought to talk like Jesus does. No coarse talk. Our speech should be um, full of grace, seasoned with salt. And the minute we profane the pulpit uh, or, or a radio mic, I know there's there's Christian podcasts where Christians think it's cool to curse. Nothing. Nothing could be more disappointing to the Lord. And those will all of them be ministries that without true repentance, those are ministries that won't last. They won't have any legs at all. Vince, thanks for the question. Hey, everybody, have a wonderful new year. Make it a safe new year. And let's together pray for each other that 2024 would be our most Jesus year ever because who knows, it could be the year that Jesus is coming back. God bless you. I'll see you next Tuesday live. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 
And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.